It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everybody. Our guest this week is filmmaker, world traveler, and media designer Daniel Rents. The second of these is what we'll focus on this week, as a good portion of his world traveling was done on both a first and second generation Airhead GS. Daniel's two films, Somewhere Else Tomorrow and Somewhere Else Together, capture his travels and journey of discovery. His website, openexplorers.com, has links to both of those films as well as an interesting documentation of bike repairs during his travels. That's something we'll dig into a bit later in our conversation. We'll also answer the burning question, would he take an Airhead GS around the world again? Before we get started, a reminder, we value your comments and suggestions, critiques, whatever. Drop us a line anytime, airheads247 at hotmail.com. All right, let's get to it. It's Daniel Rents on the Airhead 247 podcast. Okay, uh, we're on the line with Daniel Rents. Uh, and Daniel, there's a lot of stuff about your travels uh, on your BMW Airhead and also your 1200 GS. Uh, you've got a great website, Open Explorers. And you've got some books, DVDs, uh, and a lot of information out there for folks who want to dig in and find out about uh, your world travels. We'll talk about that a little bit today. But as I mentioned before we got on the uh, on the call, uh, I do want to kind of focus a little bit more on the bikes, particularly the two airheads uh, that you took on this trip. And we'll get into those in a minute. But first thing I want to ask you is, just out of the gate, tell me about if you can sort of encapsulate uh, in a in an answer here. What was the deciding factor for, I guess, you on your first trip, and then you and your wife uh, subsequently uh, for the second journey? Tell me just a little bit about the getting from the idea to the reality and making that happen. Uh, the journey itself, you're, you're asking? Yes. Or choosing the choosing the bike. Yeah, the journey. Okay. Um, well, you know, in my early 20s, I, um, I was already very curious about traveling the world. Um, I couldn't afford it. Um, I took a couple of uh, bicycle trips, longer ones, a couple of months, half a year, something like that, um, in Europe, uh, Northern Africa. And um, and then I kind of felt that I had to go and, and study again. And um, at the university, I uh, befriended someone who was very eager to hear all about uh, my travel experiences. And um, so so one night we were uh, working late for um, for a school project and getting tired and kind of 
romanticizing the, the idea of of traveling the world uh, after uh, graduation. And uh, sure enough, the kind of the idea developed um, uh, throughout the rest of the time that we um, were enrolled in the university. And and after graduation, we started. And um, after about six months, um, my body realized that this motorcycle trip and making the money along the way kind of was is a bit too much. <laughs> to to deal with, um, obviously, as students, we didn't have the budget to kind of just start and travel around the world. So we were forced to to work along the way to make every kind of every penny we needed for the trip. And um, we weren't quite sure whether this would work or not, but we kind of made it work because we were so eager to just be away from sitting on a desk and working on a computer. And anyways, we had a great time. After six months, he returned and I continued. And another year or year and a half into the journey, I met uh, Josephine um, and we fell in love very, very easily, very seamlessly, very quickly. And we traveled together two up. She was a backpacker at the time. Um, and, um, so I left some, some luggage at a, um, hotel and we were doing a loop of, uh, I don't know, a couple of thousand kilometers through Southeast Asia for a couple of months, I think three or four months. And that was the deciding factor to, for me to take a break from this attempt to circumnavigate the world, uh, and, uh, give. Josephine, some time to uh, get a motorcycle driver's license and get myself set up for the second half. So I continued to travel all the way down to uh, Australia and New Zealand. And then we took a break. I made the first movie about the first half of the uh, trip. And then we, uh, both of us together, we started the second trip in North America, went all the way up to Alaska, down to um Argentina, and then on the way back home, we didn't have enough, uh, so we we kind of threw in a little bit of Africa. Um, so we we rode um, for about a year from Cape Town all the way up to Morocco, and then crossed uh, back into Europe using a ferry. And um, yeah, that is the kind of short outline of of the journey and of the idea. So what was your motorcycle background, uh, uh, if any, before this? Had you been riding bikes as a youngster? And, you know, did you have Airhead, BMWs or other bikes? And then maybe tell me a little bit about settling in on the, I think it was what, the 82 GS uh, that you had for your first uh, trip. Right. Um, I started riding mopeds when I was 12-ish, something like that. Uh, my um, my grandparents uh, were living on a not, a, not a farm, but they were live, living out on the, on the countryside. And um, I was parked there every summer holiday or <laughs> summer break from school. I was visiting them and, um, and, and 
yeah, my uh, my uncles and friends from from the village uh, they they had little mopeds and mo- motorcycles, and we um, we were super excited and very eager to ride on them uh, illegally. I mean, off, <laughs> <off the> <laughs> um, and uh, we we kind of we came up with some fun games. We were playing catch or what do you call it? One is the catcher and then a couple others are trying, trying to get away. What do you call this game? Yeah. Yeah. Like tag or something like that. Yeah. Oh, tag. Yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah tag. That would be one. So we were on a little 50 CC or 125 CC mopeds. And, um, I remember how we, um, uh, these, um, what do you call these things that when they, uh, when the crop on the fields, when that is done, they they make these bulks. What do they call these straw straw bulks? Uh, straw I mean? straw bales, yeah. Oh, the straw bales, ba- bales. Yes, yeah. If you're like uh, a like so, like so, a big pile of like a big pile of hay or something. That's right. That's yeah. right. So they were like round, mm-hmm. kind of a cylinder kind of form. Yep. So we were pushing them close together so you have like a, like an obstacle course or like a labyrinth or something like that yeah that's great and we would kind of yeah we would drift our little motorcycles around these piles <laughs> uh, and, and and try to catch each other so uh, we had this one uh, uh, screwdriver with this bright red handle uh, grip and uh, in those days you could you could put the uh, the screwdriver in the middle of the um, um, uh, what do you call this the bearing the head head bearing yeah the steering what, what do you, yeah yeah steering head bearing that's it? right yep steer yeah yeah that one so there's a hole in the middle and you could you put this in so the one who had the the screwdriver on the bike was the catcher and he would just try to get very close to one of the other bikes and we would let. <laughs> All scoot all across the field and try to hide <laughs> behind the, the straw, and it was a good, lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So oh we, yeah, we got very close to to one of the bikes, and the other one would be the, the one who had to catch the other. So it was fun. So that was my 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 background. I was going off road. I was going wild. I was fearless, as you are as a teenager, obviously. And you, I would jump the motorcycles and everything. That is my background. Um, and then I didn't write for a longer time until I was 18 because I wasn't allowed. I grew up in a city and my parents wouldn't want me to ride bikes. So when I was 18, old enough, I got the license and I bought the bike. And and then uh, I was um, moving down to Munich and Munich's very close to the Alps. And there's a lot of uh, bendy roads and small kind of Italian, Austrian routes and mountain passes and wonderful little gravel roads around lakes and everything that a motorcyclist could want or wish for. And that's, that was my, my playground for another couple of years. And, and, and then I started traveling on the bike. And, and, and what did you have then? Oh, I only owned these two bikes that are in the movies. I bought this R80GS from 82 okay. Airhead. And uh, that, that's what I bought when I was 18. And I think back in the 90s, there wasn't there wasn't that many options. I think were, you had the, the Africa Twin, uh, the Tenere, yep. the Benz Alp, and the Airhead. And that was about it. And, and for some reason, I mean, there was no one in my uh, peer group who was into motorcycles. I was the only one. 
Um, so I, I wasn't influenced by anyone. I just looked at bikes like someone who doesn't know much about bikes. And then the decision to go for the Airhead only came about because I thought, well, you know, how about a, a drive shaft? And I don't have to, uh, you know, loop the chain. That that be that makes sense. I'll have that one. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I chose the Airhead because, uh, you know, the, the the bikes that I mentioned, these were the only ones that would go anywhere. And I think dual sport wasn't that big uh, at the time. So it was just a few bikes, and you know. So what I ended up with the Airhead. What year what year was that? What year did you buy it? And then if you recall, how much did you pay for it? Um what year was it? Must must have been the late nineties. I'm not sure. When I was eighteen uh that was ninety five, ninety six, okay. Something like that, ninety seven. Yeah. Something like that. And I paid five thousand uh Deutschmarks. So that was even before the Euro. And and today you would get five thousand euros for it. It's it's very stable. It's, it's a classic bike. People yeah, yeah, right. Uh, good money for it still. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you purchased it, uh, it I doubt that it was modified how we see in the pictures uh, on your website these yeah. days. Uh, you bought it. It was pretty much a stock uh, condition bike. There was only one modification. It had a bigger tank on it already. It was mm -hmm. a 45 liters uh, plastic uh, oh. tank on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, okay, all right. So uh, it was more of a practical matter uh, on the decision to buy the GS more than anything else. Uh, and I totally get yeah, what... Yeah, yeah. I totally yeah. get what you're saying there. Um, With the drive shaft, uh, you know, you're just... Not having a lot of other experience, or like you said, no influences from other folks, uh, I can see, uh, you know, why you would choose that one. So, <clears throat> tell me about modifying that bike. You you obviously you owned it for a while. Uh, did you make a lot of those big modifications, like the frame mounted panniers and things like that, prior to the trip, or how how did that bike get modified over time? Um, it was gradual. Um, most modifications happened when I, or when we made the decision to travel around the world on it. Um, but uh, what I did was I put a, um, a suspension in the back from Odin's um, with a with a kind of tougher spring in it, so I could carry uh, um, more luggage and I wouldn't have to twist the. Uh, the preload on it so much um, that helped a lot actually, and it's quite it's much more uh, um, durable. Uh, this this suspension in the back. Um, what else did I do? Oh yeah, I know how the the airhead, the old ones with the uh, with the drive shaft, they had this little lever from the brake that would kind of stick out, and you would pick up a lot of uh, grass and dirt if you if you go off road. Do you have, a, you have an airhead yourself? I do. I, in fact, I have a 81 uh, GS, uh, very similar to yours. Oh. Yeah. I, I, in okay. fact, I rode it to the studio uh, today for the interview. So. Oh, wonderful. That's yes. Great. <laughs> yeah. So you turn so you essentially. Know the lever I'm talking about. I do. I do. So yeah, you turn the uh, ca the cam arm on the on the brake lever, kind of 
upside down, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was one thing. Um, what else? Um, I put tougher springs in the fork. Mm -hmm. Um, I put a, what do you call this? Um, uh, I haven't spoken English in a long while. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's fine. You're doing great. It's much better than my German. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So when you protect your ears because of loud noise, what do you call this? Yeah. Ear, earplugs. Yeah, earplugs. Yes. So you put one of these earplugs at the uh, on the on the lower side of the uh, 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 head bearing. There's a hole in it, um, and then it's hollow, and then it goes across to where the steering lock is. Mm-hmm. And if you ride a lot of dirt and a lot of sand, you fling up the dirt, and it fl- flies into this little hole, and it goes across the hole where the, the steering lock is, and then it falls down and it lands on, on right on the bearing. Oh, okay. And that causes, and that causes the bearing to wear out. Uh, Prematurely. Yeah, okay, so I understand yeah, what you're yeah. saying. So you sort of sealed or plugged up uh, the, the hole down yeah, there. exactly. That makes a lot of sense, yeah, exactly. uh, especially for a long trip like that and uh, when you're not going to be yeah. on tarmac. Uh, on a regular basis. Yeah. And so tell me about your, um, I was just curious about uh, the concoction uh, design you came up with, with those sort of aluminum, I think they were aluminum sort of oh, yeah. panniers. Uh, yeah. yeah, You kind of had to do a subframe and find somebody. Um, did you build those yourself or how did all that come together? Yeah, yeah, I built them myself. Uh, I was I was going uh, bit by bit and leave the big modifications last, but it's fine. We can jump right into yeah. that. As well, so um, when we started on the world trip, I wanted to have a windshield because I knew, you know, going a moderate speed, you know, day in and day out, it would just be more tiresome without a windshield. Um, but before, I didn't have any fairing uh, in, in the front, no windshield. So looked at options for that. Um, and uh, I always liked the look of the Africa Twin with the twin headlights, yeah. the round ones. So I was looking into secondhand fairings that would look a little bit like that. And um, I found one from the Suzuki GSX-R or something like that, like a road bike. Yeah. And I modified it. I cut some plastic off and I used, um, what do you call it, uh, this fiberglass kind of uh, stuff with the honey. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I, yeah, with the uh, epoxy. So I think what you were trying, yeah. Epoxy, that's it. Yep. That's, that's the one, yeah. So I kind of built the fairing out of this and um, put a higher windshield on and mounted the GPS right behind it so it would be high up and I would it would be right in my sight. Um, and that was great. Um, I, we started uh, writing and the first couple of months we noticed we needed more stuff to, you know, like spare parts and, and, um, and, uh, tools. Um, and we, we had little uh, saddlebags on, on the tank on the left and right hand side. 
And when you when you're on the bike every day and you camp every day, you have to take everything off the bike every day and put everything on again. And you have to pitch the tent and take the tent down. And it was quite a quite a laborious process every morning, every night. So we were looking into options that we could lock stuff on the bike and leave it uh, with the bike overnight. And that's how we came up uh, with the idea of building panniers that would go on the front of the bike. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. And shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans. And as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Um, so I took a photo uh, from the, of the bike from the side, from the front, from the top, and then I remodeled it in a 3D application, and then I played around with some, um, with some forms and shapes that I, that I would like. And at the time... We were in Spain and waiting for our Algerian visas. Um, it was quite a dicey situation at the time, and we weren't sure whether we would get the visas. Anyways, it was a long process. took took I think two months or something, and uh, we used that time to stay with a friend in Spain, and we bought some aluminium. Uh, you would say aluminum. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, some sheets um, and some rivets and a rivet gun, and then we would just go to work. And uh, I think I started with building the, the the panniers out of cardboard first. Right, yeah. That would be easier to, to handle. And then once I, I was happy with the shape, I would rebuild it in with, with the aluminum. Yeah, and then we were quite happy with that uh, because we could put tools and tubes and, and things in it and lock them. We would put a locking mechanism on it and, and then leave them. We could park the bike in a city and not worry about. I mean, you could you could break in, but you know, sure, sure, a bit more, yeah, a little bit of a, a d- deterrent, I would say. Yeah, I'm looking at the photos uh, online here, uh, and for folks, if you're listening uh, and want to sort of follow uh, in with us and have a look at this, it's openexplorers.com, and there's a site or a link, uh, and I guess it, you'll see it's uh, for sale. Is the bike, do you still have it, and is it still for sale? It's. I still have it. It's still for sale. Okay. Uh, the, the newer model that I used on the second half of the trip, that already, that is, that is gone. 
Okay. That was a funny story. I was, uh, I was kind of, uh, that was a, uh, for a long time I've been waiting. It was winter, so I was worried, too worried about it. But spring came, people were calling, and then he came over to look at the bike. And I, I kind of felt that he was very eager, but I felt not very excited about revealing the fact that this thing has gone around the world. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I was worried that he would be, uh, you know, not so excited about buying such a used bike. But he looked at the all the stickers that I put on the panniers from all these different countries, and then he was like, so... So what have you been doing? I was like, oh, I was I was just traveling a little bit. <laughs> a little yeah, bit, yeah. Yeah, I was going. I want I want to travel. Yeah, where where have you been? Oh, you know, I've been to um, North America <laughs> and Central America and also South America and a little bit of Africa. <laughs> That's <laughs> and funny. I was afraid that he would just say, oh, well, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> but he was actually excited about it, and then he bought it. So yeah, <laughs> that was good. That's great. So let's get talk a little bit more about sort of how this bike performed for you uh, on your f- first uh, trip. And I guess that was the one from uh, 08, uh, 2008 through 2011. Uh, and again, folks, if you <clears throat> want to check online, there's a, a nice map uh, that you've got color coded with those two journeys on there. Um, anyway, so... Yeah, I'm curious on this first trip then, uh, how did the bike overall perform as expected? I mean, surely you had some issues and breakdowns and stuff uh, on this first trip, but overall, were you pretty pleased with uh, with how it did? Well, I was pleased uh, with how it performed. Um, but then again, I didn't have much comparison, you know. Sure. Uh, there was the only bike that I've owned for 15 years. And um, I've always worked on the bike myself, and I kind of learned everything, you know, uh, you know, by doing. And uh, so by the time I was ready to ride around the world, I already knew every every bolt and every nut by its first name. Um, so I was it was doing fine. I mean, it was an old bike to start with, and there was also always a little bit of issues here and there, but um, I uh, could easily fix them. And the bigger breakdowns were the uh, universal joint of the mm. of the drive shaft mm-hmm. and the rear wheel bearing that went. Mm-hmm. Um, but those two incidents happened at the right time. Um, so I was very, very... In hindsight, not at the time. When when I broke down in, in Pakistan, I shit my pants. Um, I, I plan, I don't know, can you can you say that? A hundred percent, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I, well, so what was the circumstance? I mean, did you notice, uh, did you notice the, the failure slowly building up or was it a, sort of all of a sudden thing? Um... I I noticed uh, I was riding down in the heat of Iran and and the, and the bike sounded very different because it was like 50 degrees Celsius. That's 
probably 110, 115 mm-hmm. uh, Fahrenheit. I'm right. not sure, but it's very hot, very hot. So the bike does sound a little different, especially because it's it's air cooled. I didn't even have an oil cooler on it. It was just a very basic model, right? Right. Um, but then in Pakistan, I crossed the border, and in Pakistan, I I know that, you know when you buy when you ride your bike so much every day, you you notice every little change. Indeed, indeed. And I noticed some some very weird vibrations and sounds uh, in my footrest, and I knew something is up. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I uh, uh, pulled down the uh, the uh, rubber. What is it called? Yeah, the drive, the boot between the yeah, the boot, the, yeah, between yep. the gearbox and the and the swing arm. Yeah, I, I pulled that down, and I, I, yeah, as soon as it, as soon as I did that, um, the needles from the bearing they fell into my hands. And, oh boy! And one of the bearing was completely gone, and the other ones were really, really bad in a bad shape. I mean, you couldn't really use them, and um, but I wasn't in a place where or in a situation where I wanted to just um, just go through Pakistan very quickly, um, because at the time there were suicide bombings and, and kidnappings, actually. Um, the Taliban had kidnapped a French guy like four weeks before I entered the country. Oh, um, good grief. Very, yeah, very bad timing, I thought, anyway. So um, I put the... I didn't want to continue riding. I probably could have, but I figured that it wouldn't go very far. And I also <laughs> was worried about the uh, bearing, the the output bearing of the of the uh, gearbox. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know it would could could possibly take damage from it. Right. So I put it on the back of a truck, uh, which cost me money. I, I didn't have at the time, and then they got me as far as Quetta, which is kind of uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a dicey place for, yeah, for white people. <laughs> it is, yes, yes, I understand. Uh, and then I put I put the bike on a train, hoping to reach Islamabad, which is the capital, and it's fairly safe. Um, it's controlled by the government, um, so I I reached there. Um, and then I tried to fix the bike. I tried to find people who could, who could find these size bearings and, mm. uh, and weld them in there. Um, that was, that was, uh, tricky. Um, no BMW dealer, obviously. <laughs> no. So yeah, I was going to ask. So, I mean, you, instead of trying to necessarily order the BMW part and have it shipped there or something as you're essentially just trying to match the bearing size and application in Islamabad. Is that my understanding that right? Exactly. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember why I didn't consider shipping. I mean, I, I probably did, but there wasn't even a DHL office or anything. It mm-hmm. was the local post postal service. And I mean, it could have could have taken a month or two or longer. I mean, I was just I want to get out of here. Um, I wanted to get into India, which is uh, which I thought was very safe in comparison. Sure. Um, so yeah, I was looking for a mechanic. Um, I just I just try I try to uh, uh, cut the story as short as I can. But I, I was 
I found a place to stay, and I was looking for mechanics, searching for it a couple of days. And every time I went into the city by foot, I came through the slum. And uh, and the third time I came through the slum, people kind of noticed that I was going there, you know, again and again. And, right, and I was right, approached right. by by a, by a guy. And he invited me into his house. I mean, house. It was uh, it was four walls, no roof. Um, uh, it was really uh, a very dire situation for these people. So I talked to him, and and it was a family, very nice family. And it turned out they were all Christian. Huh. And this whole uh, this whole community in in this uh, slum, they were all Christians, and they had they, you know within a otherwise Muslim world. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and they, yeah. So that was, that was surprising to me. I, I didn't know that they had minorities like that. I, I so, wouldn't have guessed that either. Yeah. <laughs> really? So anyway, so he, so the guy was kind of complaining to me about the situation they were in, you know, the people would come and with bulldozers and tear these houses down because they were like dwelling there illegally and, it was very difficult. I mean, all these young kids and, and families and living in such poverty, is, it's terrible. I mean, and, and that's, that's, why I, that's why I said, um, in hindsight, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Because uh, if, if the bike had held up through Pakistan, I wouldn't have seen any of it. I would have just shot through it. And, you wouldn't have had that. Ex- yeah, that's right. You wouldn't have had that experience. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I exactly. Daniel, so, I understand exactly what you're. I understand exactly what you're saying, and I, I won't tell a long story, but I'll just uh, sort of enhance that point by saying, yeah, a few of the times I've had breakdowns when I'm traveling with friends or or whatever. Inevitably, those turn out to be, you know, where you end up staying or people you end up meeting. That often tends to be the most memorable and rewarding part of the trip. Uh, I've had that same experience, not on the uh, grand global level, but I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I think every traveler will appreciate a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the <laughs> end. Kind of through it. <laughs> that's a good. That's really a, a positive uh, way of looking at it. So. All right, well, let's yeah. let's sort of uh, fast forward on the timeline here a little bit. So uh, the yep. the 82 GS uh, has uh, held up, made its trip. Uh, you get back yep. home. Uh, you've met uh, your wife, Joey, and you're starting to plan uh, for a second trip to sort of finish the circumnavigation or however we want to talk it, talk, uh, refer to it as. So... Uh, you could have taken the R80GS again, but this time you decided to get a newer one. You got a 1200, and then your wife yeah. uh, with a paralever uh, model R80. So a little bit, um, yeah. a little bit later year model. So I want to ask you on that. Uh, yeah. Did did she choose uh, that uh, 91GS, or how how did you come about that one? So on the second half of the trip, we were both going to go on the uh, R80GS, uh, the old ones. Um, and uh, Joey didn't care about the bike uh, really as long as they ha- had this very classic, basic motorcycle, typical look, 
no fairing, no kind of aggressive fairing stuff and headlights and pointy things. I don't know. She wanted, she wanted, a, you know, like when, if a kid draws a motorcycle, that's, that's the bike she wanted. Right. That's all she cared about. Yep. <laughs> and and I said, well, I can make a GS look like that, no problem. Um, and I I thought I bought I buy another GS because then we could just carry one set of spare parts and it would fit in both bikes if we needed them. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how we we chose the second bike, and I think it was only a very few months before. Uh, the trip started. Um, I talked to Touratech, which was one of our big sponsor. Not not as money, but they were like giving us free stuff, which was always great. Indeed, because you know, yeah, it helps. Um, so I was talking to them, saying, "Look, uh, guys, uh, you know, um, what can we do? Uh, what do you have for us?" And and they said, "Well, we love the movie. Uh, we love what you're doing. We would love to." Uh, support you guys, but your bikes are 30 years old. <laughs> we don't have much equipment for it any, anymore, and we don't want to push selling that stuff too much. Can't you use a newer bike? We would give you one. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah? You can give me a newer bike? Oh, I like that idea. Yeah, wow. That was and, that uh, was generous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they said, we have a fully kitted F800 GS ready for you. Um, Joey wasn't known in the, in the, uh, I don't know what you call it, in the, in this circle. Uh, so they offered just one bike at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I went to my local BMW dealer and said, Hey, I want to test ride a F800. Um, okay. So I, we took a bike ride, my dad, Joey and I, my dad was on an 1150, Joey was on her R80 and I was on the F800 and we took a trip over the weekend. And uh, over the weekend, we took turns with each bike. And I love the idea of the F800. I had sat on it on trade fairs many times and I thought that would be a fantastic bike. Um, but the more I rode it, the more I realized that this isn't the bike for me. And everyone else taking turns confirmed kind of, nah, I don't, I don't like it. I want, I want my boxer engine. Mm-hmm. I want the low center of gravity. I want uh, easy turning. Uh, this bike just, just goes straight and it, it behaves like a wild stallion. It's not very cultivated. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone had it, had its uh, opinion. And, and I was like, no, no, it's a good bike. It's a good bike. I like it. I like it. And I was, you know, torn inside. And then, I had to drop it off at the um, at the dealer again, and on the way back home, for some reason, I was riding Joey's bike home. I don't know why, how, how it came about. Anyways, so I get on the R80 GS, the one bike that I had ever ridden, and I rode home, and I said, "Yeah, no, no, it's true. It's not the bike for me. I can't, I can't go with the F800. It's not the same. It doesn't ride as well. Yeah, it's not, it's not me." Um, so, okay, I called Tourtech up again and said, hey, guys, I, I don't like the bike. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, but since you, you know, planted this idea of a newer bike in my head, now I want a newer bike. But I definitely want to stay with the Boxer because it just t- turns so wonderfully, you know, in the mountains, the, the, the bends and the curves and everything is just so great. So that's how I uh, ended up buying 
a uh, R twelve hundred GS, and I dropped off at at TourTech, and they put everything they had wow. in their catalog on it. <laughs> wow! And most of it I appreciated. I appreciated appreciated the uh, six thousand dollar suspension, which lasted the whole trip without any failure. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's impressive. I really like the look of the fairing. Um, and some of the things I thought were just just putting on weight on the bike. I, don't, I didn't see what they were useful for, but I, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's the second bike. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Interesting. So, and again, referring back uh, uh, to your webpage here, uh, openexplorers.com, there's, I want to say it's towards the bottom of the page, uh, one of the last photos down there at the bottom. You did a really neat um, sort of timeline of repairs, maintenance, and breakdown uh, with those two bikes on yep. that on that trip, but kudos to you for doing that. That was just, you know I enjoyed looking over that. And it was I also got a kid. Sure. That was funny. The note you know the note your uh, the ADGS uh, supposedly wrote you just saying, "Hey buddy, I'm too old for this. I can't do it anymore." That was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like I like that. <clears throat> but um, so I encourage folks to go uh, check out your webpage and sort of go through. Uh, this timeline, maintenance, repair, breakdown. You know, the one thing that stuck out to me on, on that is uh, almost 20, what you call down days, unable to ride uh, on, the, on the 91 uh, R80 as opposed to zero yeah. uh, on, the, uh, on the GS or on the 1200 GS. Yeah. So, and the, the maintenance and repair, is they were pretty similar uh, cost-wise. Uh, in hindsight, yeah. though, now that you know you've done this, uh, would you 
would you take out uh, an an air, an airhead again on a trip like this, knowing uh, you know what what you experienced here? And if so, what are some things now that you've had these two trips on these bikes you would do on the front end, maybe preventative maintenance wise, um, if you were to take another one? Sure. Um, you know, before I went on the second leg of the trip, I wasn't sure about the newer bike in terms of repairs. People told me, well, if something breaks, you will be stranded because no one in the third world will be able to fix it and you won't be able to diagnose it and everything, stuff like that. And it is a very serious concern among world travelers on motorcycles whether to choose an older bike, which mm-hmm. is easy to fix, or a newer bike, which doesn't break down as much in the first place. And uh, I think everybody has a different experience, and everybody rides their bikes differently and takes different routes, which are more tough on the bike or less tough. But in our experience, it was very, very clear that the newer bike uh, was uh, just carefree. Carefree, every morning I would jump on it, hit the starter button, and it would run. No problem. All I did was tires, oil, air filter. Um, in uh, South Africa, when, you know, two years into the trip, uh, we, we did some more extensive maintenance. I put an uh, oil-resistant clutch in it um, because the first year is quite long uh, on the 1200GS unless you have an adventure version. Um, so riding sand and slipping the clutch occasionally, that yeah. obviously um, requires a little bit of a tougher clutch. Um, but uh, apart from this, it was a just hassle-free, wonderful riding experience. And the older one, Joey's bike, just was there for me to <laughs> not get lazy and to meet wonderful people because it broke down a lot. <laughs> we, we, uh, we had a gear pro- gearbox problem within the first couple of months of the trip. We weren't really, we hadn't really started it. We were just landed in New York and we were riding across the country and going up to Alaska. We weren't li- really at our uh, starting point, uh, Dead Horse, Alaska. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, and then it was, it was followed by uh, alternator um, battery uh, electronic stuff, all, all lots of lots of things. Um, so, would I take an airhead on on a world trip again? Probably not. This is very very unlikely. Um, but um, still, I, I I think the airheads are wonderful machines sure. and they're wonderful to ride. Um, and if you go, I, I actually had this experience recently where I was dropping off both bikes, uh, um, one after another at the, uh, what do you call it? M- MOT? They call it in Britain. What do you have? Uh, uh, yeah. 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 Department of Motor Vehicle Inspection or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To get the little sticker for another couple of years. Do you have that? Do you have, do you have to get and, well, uh, your... Well, where I'm at in, yeah, I live in uh, the state of Arkansas, so no, uh, not in the state where uh, I live. Pre, prior to that, I lived in uh, Tennessee. Uh, there was an yeah. inspection, but it was really, you know, somebody would just come out and made sure, essentially made sure the turn signals worked, and that was about the extent of it. Right. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. It, it's a little bit more... Uh, 
uh, elaborate here. It uh, is, yes. It be quite fussy. Yeah. Anyway, so I was dropping both the bikes off, and I noticed, you know, if you're not going faster than 80 k's an hour, what's that, uh, 50 miles an hour, probably 50 miles an hour, mm-hmm. something like that? Yep. If you're not going faster than that, the bikes feel the same, you know. Um, they, they're both smooth and wonderful and responsive. Um, if you go faster, obviously the old airhead starts to, you know, uh, vibrate and and wobble and jiggle and, <laughs> and everything. <laughs> right, it, 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 it feels stable. Yeah, as it's, uh, I guess, affectionately known uh, by some Germans as the rubber cow, right? That's correct. Yeah, the rubber cow actually. This this came about. I don't know if you, if I can educate you on this. Or Please, if yes. You know, the, the rubber cow is is the the monolever version. The paralever doesn't have that. The, the, the rubber cow came about because the monolever it just happened when you pull the throttle and accelerate, the rear end of the bike moves upwards. Right. Kind of yes. Yeah. The the up. we call and it the like a, the sh- yeah. j- shack uh, jack shafting. I think is the term they use uh, here in the states. D- yeah. I'm I'm glad uh, we brought this up because my understanding on that terminology was always something. It was kind of a pejorative term to say that the bike sort of handled poorly and you know kind of had the feel of a rubber cow. But you're saying. The term had also something to do with uh, how the monolever uh, and earlier bikes uh, reacted as a uh, with the uh, drive shaft uh, on the one side when given the throttle. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, that's how I've uh, been taught about this. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's how I understand it. Uh, yeah, but uh, I think uh, every. Uh, BMW rider will confirm that once you've gone around the block a couple of times, you know, uh, driven a couple hundred kilometers, you will not notice it anymore. No, no, you're um, you're you're hundred percent right. They, yeah, the same with the with the um, <clears throat> with the the engine, the, the direction. It uh, what do you call it? The, not the camshaft, the other one. What's it? Uh, all these, all these <laughs> terms. I forgot. What's the other the thing that turns uh, on the fly? The, the, fl- cam the, f- the uh, flywheel. Yeah, well, yeah, mounted to the flywheel, the the metal rod. What's it called? The, the crankshaft. Sorry, Cr- crank. Yeah. Yes, crank and camshaft. Yes. The, yeah, crank and camshaft. They're like uh, in in driving direction, while with most bikes, they're like uh, in ninety degrees. Yeah, exactly. Uh, with a driving direction. Um, and once you have these two things turn really fast in driving direction, apparently you will notice once you pull the throttle, it'll lean to left or right. And once you let go, it, it'll lean the other way mm-hmm. slightly. So all these are kind of characteristics or uh, of, of the bike. Um, but you, you will you'll not notice after a while. You know, I had, had an interesting conversation with, uh, somebody for a previous episode, and they were essentially bemoaning the fact uh, that that sort of phenomenon of, of that era motorcycle disappeared with the paralever. And their contention was one of the reasons driving forces that behind that change for BMW was the fact that 
so many reviewers, uh, motorcycle journalists, especially in the United States, were critical uh, of that effect. Uh, his contention was that that was in part just a reaction from all the negative press uh, and really wasn't inherently a, a problem with the motorcycle. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. There's just one man's opinion, but I thought that was an interesting take on it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a problem either. It's just how physics works. Yeah. Um, with with the bevel drive in the end and, and the drive shaft going the way it was, um, it was just how the bike handled. It wasn't dangerous or it's just an effect that you have. You know, like like when you have a regular fork, a uh, telescopical fork, and you use the brakes, it dies, and nobody cares about that. I mean, except the people who built the BMW with this fancy kind of front where it doesn't dive. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just how it is. Yeah. Um, and once you ride a little bit, you will not notice. So <clears throat> we were talking earlier there, and, you know, I'd asked you if you'd take a, an airhead on a, another uh, RTW around the world. You said probably not. But let me rephrase that question then this way. Uh, what if... <clears throat> If you had the time to essentially sort of strip the bike down, uh, in essence, maybe maybe not pull the engine, but take the transmission out, have the transmission rebuilt, go through the electronics, uh, upgrade some of the electronics uh, pieces, uh, some of the weak points that you know uh, are inherent in, in the motorcycle, and especially uh, as a long-distance traveler, uh, you know, would you f feel more comfortable in that scenario? Because it seems like with, the, I'm not saying you didn't prepare the other bikes or anything like that, but, um, my take on it is you sort of purchased those, you know, got them ready for the trip, but you might not have had the time and or money to maybe go through it and sort of double, double check everything. Uh, first off is, is that am I miss? Is that a mischaracterization there? No, no, I, I know what you mean, and yeah. it's, it's a valid point. I'm happy to to talk about this. Just a quick question in between. Yeah. Um, when when you when you talk, you it's really broken off. Is my audio okay? Can your, you yes. Mine? Yeah, your audio is just fine. Let me get a little bit closer. I'm on a speakerphone. Is, is that better? A little bit, yeah. Let's see. Um, yeah, I, a little bit. I, I've got uh, okay. I've got you loud and clear, so I'll, I'll just try to speak a little bit louder and clearer, and ho hope you can understand me. I can't understand. It's just not uh, pleasant for. It wouldn't be pleasant for your listeners if I was sounding like like you do now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. No, we've got a great uh, clear connection, and in fact, I'm speaking into a nice microphone that's going to uh, our uh, recording setup here. So it's all it's all good as long as you're able to understand me and uh, make it through. We'll be fine. Okay. Okay. All right. So about your question, yeah, uh, I I hope I won't disappoint all your listeners <laughs> <laughs> and they, I, I know your channel is called airhead something right and right about airheads and everything um but the reason why i wouldn't take uh, an airhead around the world again isn't really because i'm afraid of it breaking down I, i'm not afraid of it or i'm not bothered by it either i'm happy to work on a bike and you know 
uh, get my hands dirty. That's not a problem. And also, I wouldn't take the bike apart and do everything or redo everything like the gearbox and every weak point mm-hmm. because I don't believe in that being economical. I've done this once. Um, actually, I've done this with my old bike before I bought the new one <laughs> because I thought I would take it around the world again. Right. And then I didn't make use of it. Um, I, I don't believe in doing that because uh, things will break where you won't expect them. Um, so I only fix them when they break, and I don't do any, um, you know, um, pre uh, or like precautions or um, prevent. Yeah, preventative or, is what we would say. Preventative, yes. yes. Um, uh, also, I mean, during the first trip, I was carrying certain spare parts that I knew would be a weak point, and I carried a lot of it, um, and I had to kind of carry it every day. I had to take it off the bike, strap it back on again. I had to keep it dry. I had to keep it safe. I had to worry about them when I'm, you know, not close to the bike and stuff like that. And I never used any of those. All the things that broke, I didn't carry. (laughs) I'm not surprised to hear that. Isn't that, I mean, that's exactly how it goes. All the spare parts you carry, you never use. It's the things you don't have that you need. Exactly. It's Murphy's Law. (laughs) For the second trip, I didn't carry any spare parts, and I always found a solution. So, so that's not the reason. The reason why I wouldn't take an Earhart around the world again is because I don't think I would ride around the world on a motorcycle again. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I love motorcycles. I love riding motorcycles. But the desire to be on the bike every day in every weather, in every condition, day in, day out, and miles and miles and miles, that is gone. Uh, you know, when I write, I want it to be pleasant. I want to be the, the I want the weather to be nice, and the, I want there to be no traffic, and uh, the scenery should be nice. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you you can't have all of this every day when you ride around the world. And uh, there'll be some shitty days. Uh, <laughs> so, so I guess I I wouldn't do that. And if I had to. There are so many bikes which would be, I'm afraid to say, uh, more comfortable than than the old bikes, especially when it gets into braking. You know, the old the old bikes, mm-hmm. heads, they don't braking is not their strong suit. No, it isn't. A hundred percent is not. Yeah, and if you want to go up, uh, you know, steep hills and mountains, Andes. Five thousand meters. You've got to do. You've got to. Re, you got to re, Yeah, you've got to rejet the carburetors there. Yeah, and there's not much power and everything, and uh, it's it's great technology, but it's thirty forty years old. So if if you if you're on the bike every day and it becomes part of you, um, it makes a big difference uh, going forty years forward in in technology. It, it just everything moves easier, the clutch is easier to pull, the, the, the throttle and the seating position. Everything makes a difference, you know. And, and that's why I'm saying I probably not take a, take a Airhead. They're wonderful, and I love them, but uh, 
just just do just do a couple of iron butts and then then see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, I'm not I, honestly, Daniel, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Uh, you know, your your answer there and, you know, having taken those trips you have, I mean, gosh, uh, probably totaling uh, seven or eight years total uh, seat time. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Yeah, you know, you're you're ready for a little bit more refinement uh, and something uh, a little less uh, hands on, uh, as it were. Uh, I do I do want to ask you, though, um I had this in the topics uh, that I wanted to ask you about, and I know you probably thought I had some time to reflect on this even before I asked asked this question, but tell me just a little bit about how you bond with a motorcycle. You know, it's a, obviously it's a, you know, collection of metal parts bolted together. Uh, But, you know, tell, tell me about how, how you bonded uh, with maybe each of your bikes or one of your airheads or whatever. And because it just becomes, as you say, you're on it every day uh, and you develop uh, kind of a unique relationship with a piece of machinery, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you had asked me uh, a couple of years ago, I would never have imagined that I would ever put any of my bikes uh, on the website and, and trying to sell it mm-hmm. because uh, they've become part of the of the family. Uh, if you could, if you could say, uh, I mean, you're on the bike every day, and and as I said earlier, if if something changes on the bike, you would notice even uh, how the, uh, the tires wear down. You know, uh, you kind of notice. They feel different when you corner the bike, um, and you feel like, oh, I should do an oil change. It's not quite as smooth. Or you go up a mountain, and and the uh, ratio between the the oxygen and the fuel isn't the same, and you know all these little things. And and the bike basically is your enabler. Um, it's it's what gets you to these wonderful places uh, that you wouldn't otherwise bother to go maybe because it's too too high or too hard to get there and and uh, it's your daily companion so yes you you automatically connect the freedom that you have with your bike because it's 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 the most it's the purest form of transportation of motor transportation um it's just a very it's just two wheels it's the minimum amount of wheels uh, that is stable and and an engine and nothing. There's nothing that you don't need to ride. You know, there's no roof, there's no heating, there's no air condition, there's not a bumper. You know, it's very pure, and that kind of you connect to that. I did anyways, and the reason why I uh, I sell my bikes now, or I have sold one, and I'm I'm about to sell the other one, is only because of a completely different aspect of, of um, what travel kind of gave me. I don't know if, if I, I just touch it briefly. I'm please. not sure if yeah, yeah, please. Uh, this uh, is, is the right forum. But when I returned from these many years of traveling around the world, I realized something changed inside of me because for for all these years my focus was how do i travel around the world 
what do I need? How do I get the money to travel? How do I keep my bike fit enough? How do I keep myself in a place where I can do it? How do I research visas and maps and terrain and culture and learn languages? All these things. That has been the focus of of many years. And then I returned and I could say I circumnavigated the world on a motorcycle and it was my dream. But I didn't feel like that this was something that I could be proud of uh, or I didn't feel accomplished at mm. all. Mm. And um, I felt that living on the road and being out there it has been much more intense than any other phase in my life, like doing an, an, an everyday kind of nine to five job or something that it was, it was the best time I had, but I couldn't, I couldn't continue because I knew that I would just repeat the experience before different backdrops. You know, I just, the scenery would change, the people would change, but it would be the same experience. Um, and this, this desire, this, this thirst for something, this something that I was looking for, this curiosity that made me go in the first place, that was still there in me. Mm. I was still looking, but I realized I, I couldn't, it wouldn't make sense to just keep searching in the same dimension, you know, in the, in the X and Y axes, uh, going around the world, across and down and up. Um, because if I had found what I was looking for, I would have found it. You know, I was on the road for long enough. Um, so, so selling the bikes is, is uh, part of a realization that I, uh, I need to look in a different dimension. I, I turned inwards uh, after we returned from the journey. I, I meditated I uh, I do yoga, and I want to sell the bikes because they have been a fantastic part of probably the best time in my life. But it's 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 over. It's over, and I want this to sink in that something new has to come now by getting rid of old stuff of things and and uh, because it is not connected to the experience the experience is always there but if i kept the bike i would revolve around the bike and bike travel and living on the road for longer than i need to because that experience has been made it cannot be intensified or improved um there's new stuff now. Yeah, yeah, that that's um, that's a really great way uh, of putting it. I understand 100% what you're saying, and it sounds to me like, uh, in in some ways, the journey uh, still continues, and you know, will it? I don't think it will ever end uh, to a certain degree, will it? Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I the journey will always be going on and uh, I'm very grateful for everything that I have experienced so far. Um, but I'm also looking for, for new, new things, newer dimensions, different experiences, you know? And yeah, uh, I love my bikes, but uh, you know, if someone else can make use of them or be happy about redoing them or 
sprucing them up or making them look whatever they like, then it's more, it's better. It's more useful. Well, perfect. And so, yeah, let's just say it's still on the website uh, for sale, open-explorers.com. Uh, There's some great photos, uh, great story behind it. And we do have a number of international listeners, uh, folks in Germany, uh, Europe, uh, and elsewhere. So, you know, who knows? Maybe somebody will hear this and, and get in contact with you. Uh, one, one other thing I want to ask you sort of specifically uh, about the airhead is I'm curious among Germans, um, both older and younger riders, um, is there still kind of a sense of, of uh, I don't know how I want to put this, <clears throat> is there still an appeal, uh, a strong appeal to the old airheads uh, in Germany among older and younger riders? Is it starting to change? Uh, what, what's the sort of status with the, that era of bike over there now? Well, I, over the years, I've been invited to many events, uh, travel events and motorcycle events, and I've talked to many other riders, and I think the old airhead is a very big part of this culture, uh, especially among travelers. And I think it goes across generations, old people, younger people, uh, and people in between. They all, or yeah, not not everyone, but you know, in, in every generation, there's there's people who who love these bikes, and it's uh, it's important to them. And I've, I've I have met people and marvelled at at their bikes. They spend way more on an old airhead. Uh, you know, uh, modifying them and getting them to the to a point where they really like it. They spend more money on it than you could possibly spend going into a BMW dealership and tick all the boxes and order all the extra features. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, people do love these bikes, and I don't know what it is. Uh, uh, I guess. It's it's just, yeah, they, they must have done something right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. They just have a, a unique way of, of connecting with folks. So, uh, you know, you alluded to the fact, uh, of course, in, in when you mentioned you're selling the bike, um, uh, that motorcycle, and you're still sort of, you know, that open-ended question, you know, you haven't found what you're looking for. But so I'm wondering now, just to, uh, as a practical matter, um, your background is in, was in filmmaking, uh, prior to, so these days, you know, sort of, what are you, what are you up to basically now that, you know, you're not motorcycle traveling, you're still obviously selling, uh, and promoting your, your books and your, uh, travel, uh, DVDs and things like that, which again, want, want to remind folks they can find that, uh, openexplorers.com. But, uh, what, what's sort of taken up, uh, your days and hours, uh, these days? Sure. Um, I I do get invited to talks and presentations, mm -hmm. and you know people like you who who uh, write to me and ask if we can talk about the travel and the bike and everything. That still happens, um, and I enjoy it. It's fine, um, but it's not a huge part of my life nowadays. I I work as a freelance filmmaker. Um, I'm pretty well connected with a couple of companies and I get to travel a lot uh, for work 
and I do fun projects with uh, uh, people who do sports or are into whatever crazy thing and, and uh, do documentaries and some some commercial business films. Um, that pays the bill really well. I mean, com- compared to being a world traveler, uh, it's, it's, it's really easy money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and uh, Joey and I, we had a baby six months ago. Uh, congratulations. So up a lot of, yeah, thank you. So it's, it's a completely new and different journey, which is wonderful. Uh, it's, it's very uh, hard. Uh, the nights are short. and <laughs> <laughs> uh, But it's, it's wonderful it's, uh, to see a new life and see how the new life explores the world the way I've been exploring the world, you know, all my life, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's great. So I don't really look for anything big or exciting right now because um, the joy is really within and and, and the small three-person family right here is, is, what completely fills my heart right now, and uh, who knows uh, if, if you know once the baby is bigger and uh, moves on or goes to college or whatever happens, um, I'm I'm pretty sure that Joey and I will look at each other and say, "Look, uh, we've been doing this for a while now. You know, the world is waiting for us. We need to do something. We need to go somewhere." <laughs> I'm sure that'll happen. I, I bet. I bet. Well, yeah, what, what a great transition, uh, you know, from all that when you were younger and without those uh, responsibilities and concerns. Uh, now you've got a nice uh, family uh, at home and got some great years uh, in front of you for that, I'm sure. Um, so I want to, again, remind folks, you do have some interesting things. Uh, you know, we touched, as I mentioned, we touched on a little bit, you know, sort of philosophically, uh, about your travels and, you know, we didn't go into a whole lot of travel stories, but for folks who are interested in that, uh, just tell me about what you've got available as far as book wise and DVD wise. Cause I'm imagining, you know, that's a, a source of income still for you today. Yeah, um, it is. In fact, um, the first movie came out 2013, and it, to this day, every month they uh, they give they send me a check. So hey, great! <laughs> it, it, it it's been I don't know in this niche market, uh, it's been very successful for what it was like a like a one man production. Um, people love it. I get emails from people saying, you know, I mean, I'm not joking. Uh, it, it, it's I I have quite a few emails from people who said it changed their life. They sold everything, uh, quit their job, and, and they started to travel and live a different life, and they're happy, happy as ever. So that that is really one thing that I am proud of, to, to have shared uh, something that was very close to my heart, very important to me, the, the, the travel and the exploration of the world, and, and it touched many people. So this film, the first film, is called Somewhere Else Tomorrow. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful little film. Um, and, uh, and the second film came out uh, 2019 or 20. Uh, what do we have now? 22. Yeah, 20. And uh, it's 
Yeah, it's been well received as well. Um, it, it's very different because it's two people now, Joey and I traveling. We're both filming a little bit. And um, as a couple, you have different um, different experiences. You, you meet slightly different people. Um, and also uh, the experiences I made during the first trip, they played a part into how risky you want to go and how <laughs> how crazy you want to go and in, yeah. in the second film I kind of had this um, uh, you know I didn't want to uh, I mean when it was only me I didn't care whether I would sleep in a ditch or you know not have a shower for three days or anything you know I was just that was okay but when once I traveled with my with the love of my life, I didn't want to go this far. Yeah, you feel, it's a, it's a different responsibility level. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but still, we ha- we had some wonderful encounters uh, with wonderful people. We learned a lot, and uh, we have some beautiful shots from from all the. I mean, even start in starting in the U.S. I mean, you you guys have everything. Right there, right? Mountains, beaches, forests, uh, wonderful landscapes, amazing cities. So, yeah, uh, but Central and South America, Africa, it's quite exotic, quite different, quite a fun experiences. So that is the second movie. And um, the book I you mentioned, that is not yet out. I'm yeah, I saw that. It. So it's, uh, it's being printed or you're making some final... Uh, preparations for it? Yeah, it's in the final stage of, of uh, getting getting ready. The print stage is going to to be uh, yeah, it's going to be printed very soon. Um, the, the reason why I left it this long is I, I didn't want to write a book that is mirroring the films or kind of going along with the films. What I'm doing with the book is I'm writing it in hindsight. So I'm picking short stories that I couldn't put in the movies because I wasn't able to film them or it was inappropriate to film them. So I wrote them down and then I talk about what they, uh, what they, what these stories gave me, what they made me think or how they changed me. Um, so it's kind of a uh, retrospect uh, book and I'm putting the, uh, the best photos that we've taken of, of these six years of traveling in, in the book. And I also have a, a revised version of the diary, the travel diary in the book as well. So it, it'll take up one third, which is um, it's just text, just every day that we wrote something. Um, it was, it was uh, edited by a copy, copy editor and revised, and it's, it's in there as well. So that's that's what I'm working on these days, and it'll come out sometime this summer. Excellent. And I should also mention now what 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 I'll bring up here. When folks eventually hear this, uh, the time will have passed where this event will have taken place. So we're speaking about something that's in the past currently, so to speak. But anyway, uh, I see you've got a ride. Uh, you're working with uh, Almoto Almoto. Uh, and you've got a, uh, a ride sort of 
planned for the month of August, which uh, I guess you're preparing for now. So tell me a little bit about that. And if folks hear this, you know, later on in the fall or winter months, uh, is this something you're going to be continuing doing where there'll be other tours and trips like this? Well, where I will be doing this again really depends on the experience uh, that, I'll, that I'll be having <laughs> this August. <laughs> well, what happened is, <laughs> what happened is uh, I was invited to, to a show or a trade fair or someplace, and uh, I was chatting to people. And then this uh, motorcycle tour operator approached me, and she said, um, Daniel, if you would do one ride anywhere in the world. What is the what is the best three week, four week kind of round trip motorcycle ride anywhere in the world? What's your favorite place? And I was like, you know, the first second I heard it, I was like, that is the stupidest question ever. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. How can you decide? Yeah, yeah. How can you decide uh, what's the best place? And then about a second later. If that, maybe it was a little less. I said, oh, yeah, I know which one. I know which one. Because uh, <laughs> I was riding in northern India in the Himalayas, uh, going up into the Ladakh region. And that was really, I mean, that was something else. Um, it's the roof of the world. It's the, hi- the highest mountains in the world. And you ride the highest mountain passes. And, and, and the mountains are like, it's like, the, the biggest mountains, you know, but they're on they're on steroids. They're even they're even bigger, and the valleys are even more vast. It's really crazy. Um, and uh, I think also there was a spiritual uh, side to it. Um, I was I was sitting up in these mountains, feeling so small and insignificant and and uh, and abandoned. There was, there was very few people up there, and. Uh, it was serene, um, and uh, and the riding, the motorcycle riding itself, obviously was exciting as well because you were going on roads, on gravel roads, with with uh, on the on the one hand side you had a steep cliff going down a couple thousand meters, and on the other side go you have a wall that goes up a couple thousand meters, and there'd be you know no tarmac or anything, no no protection, and there was small enough for one truck to go by. And if the truck came towards you, you would have to think quick on your feet. Yeah, I, I think we've all we've all seen those photos or videos on YouTube of something of those. Yeah, of those buses yeah. navigating those roads. And as we say here in most in, in the states, most of us was would just say, "Oh hell no, I am not doing that." That's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that that was my experience, and I r- responded to this uh, motorcycle tour guide operator uh, and and said, well, yes, yes, India, northern India, uh, I would I would go there, and then and then she said, well, how would you feel about being a motorcycle guide and taking a couple people to this place? And back at the time. I was just back from a trip, and I was broke, and I was like, oh, yeah, going to travel uh, for free? Yes, 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 <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> and uh, and then it kind of evolved over the years. Uh, we first tried to pull it off, uh, and then COVID-19 hit. Mm-hmm. 
had postponed it and we had to postpone it again. And this year it's going to happen. Excellent. So, Anna, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, they'll all, the motorcycles will all be some of the newer uh, Royal Enfields. Uh, is that right? Yes, they'll be they'll be newer, um, but they'll be the uh, the old kind. Okay. Uh, Royal Enfield just came out with a they call it the Himalayan model. Right. Yep. And it is uh, the ergonomics of the bike is 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 way more modern than the ones we will be using. We will be using the bike that every other Indian is using. Um, and uh, they're very common. Everyone uses it. And if you go to a supermarket uh, at the cashier, you know, where where you have the bubble gum and the, and the items that you pick up just randomly before you pay, that's where in India you can buy a gearbox or a wheel or <laughs> really it's that it's that ubiquitous that's amazing yeah that's how common the bike is and that's what we're going to be using uh to blend right in excellent well that sounds like a wonderful journey uh and boy that i mean that's really just kind of right around the corner here for you isn't it yeah 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 i'm looking forward to it excellent so again the uh, website openexplorers.com uh, many of the things we talked about, you can find out more in depth. I saw there's also a, a TED Talk video, and uh, I saw a couple other YouTube uh, interviews with some other folks uh, out there where, you know, you talk a little bit more about your travel experiences uh, and things like that. So there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things out there folks can dig into a lot deeper here than what we've just sort of discussed uh, about the old airheads and motorcycles. So look, Daniel, uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, sharing your stories with me. I know you've probably talked about this ad nauseum, it seems like, over the years, but uh, uh, it, it's some great insight uh, to motorcycling, world travel, and, of course, our, our beloved Airhead. So thank you once again. Great luck with the family, and uh, as we always say, keep up the good work. Thanks, Darren. Okay. Thank you. All the best, and uh, we'll see you sometime somewhere. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks to Daniel for joining us. What a great conversation this week. His website again, openexplorers.com. There you'll find links to both his films and a trove of information on his motorcycles and world travels. Thanks everyone for joining us this week. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.